We are so excited that the county dropped the lawsuit after this <clears throat> after this year of drama, we thought, you know, just saying thank you is not enough. We got to get together and eat a hot dog or something, right? So we're going to come to the barbecue if you want to join us early on that, not next Saturday, but the following Saturday. Uh, be over here in this part of the parking lot. We'll just have some fellowship. We're just celebrating God's goodness and what a wonderful answer to prayer as we've been seeking his face. Well, if you're new to God Speak, we're reading through Anchored in the Word, which is a two-year Bible reading program, and our preaching comes from that. So uh, just as I met with a couple before service, like, how's this thing work? You open it up, and it looks a bit like a phone book. So if you need any thoughts about that, you can talk to me afterwards. But God's Word will change your life. You know, when Jesus was tempted three times, all three times, he said, it is written, it is written, it has been said. And unless you know what he wrote, what he wrote, what he said... You're kind of sunk, right? You, you, you don't know the word to be able to, it's the offensive weapon, it's the sword of the spirit to fight in the spiritual battle that you and I are daily engaged in. And so from that portion of scripture, we're going to be looking at Luke 22. So if you have a Bible, open up to the gospel of Luke chapter 22. If you need a Bible, Linda and Kelly have some Bibles, raise your hand, they'll get you one. We're going to stand in a few moments and read this passage of scripture. Title of our message tonight is Seven Stepping Stones to Failure. As if you want to know how to go down steps of failure. But the reality is, in our humanness, we're usually well equipped and well acquainted with sin and failure and getting far from God. But how do we look at it? If you're going to do basically a blueprint for it, or you're going to look at the anatomy of it, and you're going to take it apart piece by piece through this process, Peter gives us a great illustration of what this looks like. And some components, not always the same, but some common components that you and I will struggle with when we're headed to falling on our face in our walk with God. And all of us want to be able to avoid that. You know, there's... <laughs> There's two ways to learn things in life, by observing other people's mistakes and not repeating them or doing them all yourself. Now, truly, most of us have a mixture of those two things. I was the youngest of four, and so the benefit of being the youngest of four is that don't do that, don't do that. Ooh, they got a whip in there. You know, you, you go through this, you know, you're watching them, and when you're the youngest, you're learning by osmosis much more quickly than the oldest when he has no... Um, peer group of siblings that are getting beat about the head and shoulders by life itself. And so hopefully you and I will glean from these seven stepping stones to failure that we'll learn how in the opposite way of being strengthened. You see, it's like a staircase with seven steps going down, but it's also a staircase that those seven steps could be going upward and a strengthening in your walk with God. Well, we're going to read these first few verses to get us started here in Luke 22. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Luke 22, we'll be reading verses 31 through 34. Follow along with me in your Bibles. The Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Then Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me three times that you know me. Father, we just ask that you administer the truth of your word to our hearts, that you would open our spiritual eyes of understanding, that we might grow and see wonderful things. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sit down together. Well, these seven stepping stones, we first see that, number one, Peter is arguing when he should be listening. You ever have that problem with the Lord? You're reading God's word and God's talking to you and you're going, I don't believe this, I don't want this, and you're trying to get away from God's word. That ever happened to you? I talk to people in church all the time. As a matter of fact, as a pastor for 32 years, I've counseled people and they come in and they'll ask me something and I'll say, well, the Bible says this and this and this. I usually try to share three, two or three passages of scripture that speak to that subject, whatever they're talking about. And they say, well, I don't believe that. Well, I don't think Jesus meant that. And they go through it and, and so they ask another question. I 
go, well, the Bible says this, and I'll give them two or three Bible verses and concepts from Scripture, and they'll say, well, I don't want to hear that. And I ask them, usually about halfway through, why'd you make an appointment? Why'd you want to come here? Well, I thought I would come and get some counseling from the pastor. I said, you know I'm a preacher, right? And I, and I have one book. I, I'm not a licensed psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a counselor in any way. I'm just a biblical counselor, meaning I know God's word very well, and I know Jesus very well. And if you really want to hear what Jesus says from his word, then you came to the right place. And if you don't want to hear what Jesus has to say from his word, then you probably came to the wrong place. Maybe I can suggest a few counselors in town that I know that maybe won't give you any Bible verses, and maybe you'll be happy. That's the most shocking thing that's ever happened to a person in a pastor's office. When I'm like, hey, why don't you go see this guy? You actually don't want to hear God's word, so it's okay. Go ahead. Because bottom line, nobody, nobody can make another person want to agree with God's word. You have to choose that on your own. You have to embrace that on your own. You're an autonomous individual that has the ability to accept and reject Truth, opinions, reason, evidence, whatever, solely because you are a free moral agent. So Peter here, Jesus tells him one of the most startling things that I think could possibly be told to a child of God. And he says his name twice. You know, anytime the Lord repeats your name twice, he's really trying to get your, it's, it's kind of like a parent using the child's full name. You know, okay, they really want my attention or I'm in trouble. And he says, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Now, is that the most frightening statement in the world? What if Jesus came to you and said, Bill, Bill, G Satan has asked for you by name that he might sift you as wheat? <laughs> I mean, it makes you want to go weak in the knees that he's actually asking for Peter by name. That's what this passage implies. It's not some general, I'm going to persecute the 12 or the church. Or, no, I want Peter. And he comes to God's throne and he asks specifically to have access to go after Peter. Now, we know how this works because Job chapter 1 and 2 give a, pull back the curtain on the spiritual realm that Satan has access into heaven. Now, in this crazy set of events, which people think Satan's in hell, he's not in hell. Nobody's in hell right now, as far, so, just so that you know. They're ultimately going to that place, but right now they're in county jail, which is the suffering side of Hades. Now, I'm not going to unpack all of that theological information right now, but Realize this, Revelation 12.10 says, The accuser of our brethren, who is Satan, who accused them before our God day and night. Satan accuses you and I before the throne of God day and night. In Job chapter 1, the Lord said to Satan as he came before his presence, he says, Have you considered my servant Job? <laughs> and Satan responded, Touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. What was the challenge? It makes me think, God was so proud of his servant Job. He said, have you thought about my boy Job? Upright man, shuns evil, loves good, great guy. Have you, have you considered him? And he goes, well, I can't get to him because you built this hedge around him. You've blessed his socks off. I can't get to the guy. You see, Satan came and God was proud of Job. And he said, hey, have you thought about it? It makes you kind of think, Lord, if I'm doing well and you're proud of me, could you not mention it to the devil? Right? If I'm having a good week, could you please not tell the devil on me? Hey, have you considered my servant Rick? <laughs> and yet, with this very specific satanic attack on Peter himself, Jesus said, but, this is the most wonderful but in this sentence for Peter's heart. He says, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail, and when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Jesus was laying out to Peter exactly how the night was going to go. He said, I've prayed for you. Your faith won't fail. His courage is going to fail, but his faith doesn't fail. And when he's restored, when he repents, when he gets back in his right place with the Lord, he said, I'm going to use this to strengthen the brethren through your life. Did you know that oftentimes, out of the mess of our own failure, God strengthens us? to be a messenger to others, to encourage them, right? I've discovered 
through all of these years of preaching, when I share that I did really good in this situation, it really doesn't minister to anybody. But when I share about how I stumbled and I fell on my face and I messed up and God was gracious to me, people come up, oh, Pastor, that ministered to me. I'm so glad you failed. They're so happy I fell on my face. <laughs> Why? Because it makes us human, Right? If you hear these glowing stories of heroic spiritual leaders that, you know, they don't put their pants on one leg at a time. If you ask almost anybody who's their favorite character in the New Testament, emphatically people will say one guy, Peter. Why? Because Peter only took his foot out of his mouth to put the other one in his mouth. Peter messed up constantly. And, I mean, the 12 apostles are really blessed that it's not just, it's the apostles. You would think he would just scrap them and go with the B apostles, maybe the C apostles, because they're messing up all the time. And here, as Peter is assaulted, later on, as he writes his first letter, he will say this, with much experience to strengthen us, in 1 Peter 5, 8, 9, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. He's saying the same things that I go through, you go through. And the same thing you go through, the person across the aisle goes through. There is nobody in this room that gets out of this thing called life without experiencing the garbage of temptation. Do not think you're alone. And I find that the devil loves to lie to people. You're the only one. Here you are tonight. And you're struggling with some sin. You're struggling with some temptation. You've been in bondage for a while. And the devil whispers in you, you're the only one in the room. <laughs> That's funny. Why? Because we're all human. Right? He's, yeah, but Billy Graham didn't struggle. He most certainly struggled with that. Don't you realize that if you're human, you're in this thing called life, and none of us are exempt from temptation? Do you realize that the Bible says that Jesus was tempted in all points? You know what it means in the Greek? All. There's nothing you've experienced that Jesus did not experience, except it says, yet without sin. He resisted it. And so Peter now argues. The Lord tells him what's going to happen. He, instead of just listening and accepting it and maybe trying to wrap his head around it, he argues with him. He says in verse 33, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to die. And then Jesus says, hey, before morning, you're going to deny me three times. It's hard for Peter to wrap his head around. Mentally, he sincerely believes, I will go to prison and I will die with my Lord. And yet before the night's over, three people, they're not soldiers. They don't have swords. They're not threatening to crucify him. They simply ask, are you with him? And he denies it three times. Denies that he even knows Jesus. Startling. He's the leader of the 12. And yet here, his overconfidence See, in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, and 13, Paul the Apostle tells us, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Do you know one of the number one downfalls of the child of God is overconfidence? Oh, I'd never fall to that. I'd never get addicted to that. I'd never steal that. I'd never say that. I would never. It's how many times have we said it and done it? How many times have you said, I've drawn the line, I would never, famous last words, I would never. Do you know as a human being, there is nothing you are not capable of put in the right circumstances? You've just never been in those circumstances. Because your fallen nature, when push comes to shove, comes down to self-preservation. I remember showing my kids, we went to the historic museum there at uh, Donner's Pass, any of you who have went through Donner's Pass, and the people in a snowstorm, they end up eating each other, right? The famous story. And so we're in there, and we're talking to the kids, and I'm like, yeah, these people are starving to death, and they start eating each other. And my kids are like, gross, yeah, I would never eat anybody. I said, oh, yes, you would. <laughs> oh, yes, you would. And I said, if we ever get caught in a eat me first because I'm the largest. So, you know, I'll have the most meat on my bones, and you guys can, and they were like, I was really traumatized in them, them at that moment. But what I was trying to teach them and convey to them, until you're starving to death in the mountains and going to die, and there's that person and they're dead, and they're like, well, they're already dead. They're not going to feel anything. I could actually survive and eat, eat that leg right there. You go, oh, oh, 
That's true. But how many stories have we heard? Soccer teams up in the Andy Mountains, what do they do to survive? They eat one another. I find it ironic that people really do not know what they are capable of simply because they've never been in the right circumstances. Praise God, right? Praise God. We're glad. Jesus, please don't put me in that circumstance. I I have no desire for steak tartare. No desire whatsoever. But having said that, Peter is arguing and you know, sometimes God's just speaking to you about things in his word. And rather than listening, rather than taking heed, rather than realizing your own vulnerability, you're arguing with him. You're arguing with him about the truth of his word. And so rather than listen, Peter's arguing. And this is the first stepping stone in disobedience to fall on your face and sin. The second is preparing when you should be realizing. It says in verse 35, he said to them, when I sent you without money, bag, knapsack, and sandals, did you lack anything? So they said nothing. Then he said to them, but now he who has a money bag, let him take it. And likewise, a knapsack, and he who has no sword, let him sell a garment and buy one. And I say to you that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors, quoting Isaiah 53, 12. For the things concerning me have an end. Everything was coming to a climax at the cross. And then verse 38, so they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. They were sent out one time and he said, don't take any money, don't take a knapsack, don't take anything. I'm just going to provide for you. But this time, he tells them, hey, it's going to be a different story in your future ministry. Go ahead and take your money along. It's okay to have some money in the bank. It's all right to take your backpack with some extra supplies and resources. And it's okay to have a sword. If you have an extra cloak, you actually should sell that cloak and go down and buy a Glock 19 with about 50 rounds. Right? And that's okay. Right? Jesus, Jesus was all for the Second Amendment. Did you know that? That's what buying a sword's all about. It's about arming yourself to defend yourself. He is pro-NRA. And so <laughs> the disciples say, Lord, look, we got two swords. There's 12 of us, we've got two swords. And he goes, that's enough for you guys. Don't go, don't go Rambo on me. You know, two swords are sufficient. Just have some swords to protect yourself. Now, these are all about practical things of preparing Right, you just get prepared. Get your money together if you're going to serve God. Get your resources together if you're going to serve God. Uh, make sure that you're protected uh, to, to serve God. And, but they're preparing when we should be realizing, actually, my temporal needs are pretty much a, a passing, passing thing as far as they're a given. God's going to take care of those needs. But the battle that Peter's in right now is not about a money bag, and it's not about a backpack with resources or about a Glock on his hip. It's about his internal life spiritually. Externally, they have what they need, all right? So they're prepared. But there needs to be a realization that your outward circumstances that consume 90% of your time are not as important as your spiritual condition as you face temptation, right? How many of us have fallen on our face in temptation, in sin. We got plenty of money in the bank. We have a gun in the cabinet. We have, I mean, we're fine. It, it, it's the temptation that's kicking our butt, not a lack of resources. It's not this or that. It's our internal strengthening that you and I need, spiritually speaking. Peter also is sleeping when he should be praying, as well as the other disciples. But through all of this, there's a lot of wonderful spiritual groceries in this passage that I'm not unpacking because we're keeping our eye upon Peter's life as this unfolds before us. Verse 39, coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven and strengthened him. 
And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. Then he said to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray lest you enter into temptation. In verse 40 and verse 46, he told them the same thing. Pray lest you enter into temptation. There's a reason in our Lord's Prayer, which is a great outline for your daily prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Because we are tempted in a daily way. But he's encouraging them to pray, but what are they doing? There's nothing like a beautiful prayer meeting to go to sleep, right? The lulling sounds of praying the Lord's Prayer. Maybe it's, in this case, it's late at night. They've been busy all day long. And one of the hardest things for me to do is pray late at night. It's like, Lord, bless the day, and (laughs) out I go. The disciples here are sleeping when they should be praying. When we face temptation and our life is, does not have a consistent strengthening that comes through prayer, we are weak, anemic, and impotent with power to resist. We also, we need to listen to his word as we talked about in the beginning, but we also need to be filled with the power of personal prayer. Lord, lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from the evil one. Now, in such a radical contrast, it says that Jesus knelt down. And in verse 44, it says, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, this passage is interpreted in two ways. The drops of sweat were so big, they were like blood. But there's also a medical condition which it appears was taking place. And I believe sincerely it is taking place in Jesus' life. And that is hematidrosis. Hematidrosis, uh, according to the medical news today, hematidrosis, can people sweat blood? Mythology and religious texts are full of stories of leaders and heroes sweating blood. This phenomenon is not just fancy, however, but very real. As well as bloody sweat, people can ooze blood from their eyes, nose, and other mucous membranes in a condition known as hematidrosis. Most studies suggest and stre- that stress and involuntary nervous system reactions cause hematidrosis or bloody sweat. Notice stress. Do you think anybody experienced more stress than Jesus the night before he went to the cross? In the history of the planet, right? The perfect, sinless son of God. We talk to somebody that's stressed out and we can see it. It looks like the the weight of the world is on your shoulders. Literally, the weight of the world, of the sins of the world, was on Jesus' shoulders. And he was facing the cross. Look at this uh, fast facts on hematidrosis. Remains mysterious due to its rare occurrence is so rare that studies on it usually focus on a single case. Research suggests that tiny blood vessels that cause bloody sweat are more likely to rupture, notice this, under intense stress. The stress can be physical, psychological, or both. Jesus is in such anguish and in such stress and in such intensity of prayer as he's praying, the Lord sends an angel from heaven, touches him, and strengthens him. And Jesus was able to do the Father's will, even the brutality of the abuse before the cross, and as they drove spikes through his wrist and his hands, and he gave his life for the sins of the world. Jesus was able to face the temptation, his greatest temptation. What was that? When Jesus prays, and people just kind of miss this, or they gloss over it, or because Jesus is who he is, they don't want to acknowledge it. He is saying, Father, if there's any other way this cup can pass from me, nonetheless, not my will be, your will be done. What is Jesus praying? He's praying, Lord, if there's any other way to save humans than me going to the cross, let's do plan B. That's what he's saying, straight up. And he knew the brutality of the cross, and yet he was willing to pray it, and he prayed it how, three times. Father, please. Take this, I, I, I don't want to do this, man. They're going to drive spikes through my hands, my feet. I'm going to, feel the, I'm going to be separated from you where he, he, he cries out, my, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
I mean, the anguish that he's going to go through to save you, to save me, to save humanity. He prayed three times that he could escape the cross. What was the temptation? Don't go to the cross. Don't go to the cross. Don't go to the cross. Yet he was prayed up. He was listening to the Father's words. Peter's arguing with Jesus' words. He's going to sleep through the prayer meeting. The fourth step, stepping stone downward in failure for Peter, he's fighting when he should be permitting. It says in verse 47, While he was still speaking, behold, a multitude, and he was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? Remember, they have two swords. And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Hard to defend Jesus when he's uh, putting the body parts right back on as fast as his disciples are chopping them off. John's gospel tells us specifically the guy that is a, a not very, he's, he's no Zorro, Peter. He's a fisherman. He has a sword. He chops a guy's ear off. I mean, what were you going for? Were you going for the ear? I mean, how scary is that? He chopped my ear off. I mean, aren't you going to do some damage if you're actually going to defend the Lord, kill somebody, or do something that's quite heroic? No, he, I just think he's a bad shot. Chops off the guy's ear. John 18.11 says this, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? In verse 51, the previous verse, he said, permit even this. You see, Peter's fighting when he should be permitting the Lord to go through the journey to the cross, to the tomb, to the resurrection that the Father had planned for him. And I think one of the hardest things in the world sometimes when we're going through conflict is watching other people suffer and trying to fight to save them when this is their journey in life. We try to do that as parents, don't, for, for our kids. We try to fight all the journey, all the battles for our kids so they don't have to do it. You hear parents, you know, they got the 12-year-old or the 14-year-old, don't do this, I did this. And you go through your whole life, you were, you were an awful person, now you were trying to raise good kids, and you're trying to tell them, I know everything that's bad, I'm going to train them with everything that's bad so that they don't do the bad, and I'm going to rescue them. And you become the helicopter parent, the hovering. You're going to control everything. You know, kids don't do well with that. You can share with them. But they have their own journey. They have their own experience. And parents keep trying to rescue them. Parents will rescue them into their 20s, into their 30s, into their 40s. They keep rescuing them. And I'll pray with, and no offense, ladies, but moms can be the worst. Moms will come up to me, and they're 50 years old, and they have a 30-year-old. Oh, Pastor, I'm praying for my son. And because I was at the same church for 25 years, I knew people really well for a long time. And they said, Pastor, you know so-and-so, my son. I said, yes, I know your son. And I just, I'm just praying God will get a hold of him. And I said, he would if you would finally get out of the way. <laughs> well, what do you mean by that? I said, well, you bailed him out of jail two months ago. You did this for him. He's in your basement. He's, he's, you told me he stole your checkbook, and he's spending all your money, and he's, he's doing all this stuff. You know what? Until you commend him and permit God to do whatever he's going to do in his life, this is the journey you have. And that's one of the hardest things you'll ever do in your entire life is commend, which means to commit your children to God and say they have their own testimony. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying do that to the five-year-old. You train up the kids in the way they should go, but as they start getting older, you start loosening your grip. You start allowing them to make decisions. You start giving them freedom so that they can make those mistakes. Some parents lock their children down. You know, like, it's, it's like... <laughs> It's like Fort Knox till they're 18, and then they, you know, open it. I did my job till they're 18, and I'm, they were good kids till then, and I'm just going to turn them loose, and then they just go off the rails. I'm like, it's not, you know, choke them till they're 18 and then turn them loose. It's a slow process of letting your kids go. 
As they hit that 13-year-old mark, you start letting go and you start giving them room and starting making decisions. And they'll make some good decisions and they'll make some bad decisions and foolish decisions. But you're there with them to talk it through with them. You're just talking it through. It's not the end of the world. Hopefully, you know, you're always praying for mercy as they're making those mistakes and, and working on their testimony <laughs> with their life that they don't do something that's a serious damaging thing. But you're involved relationally in the process with them. See, here, Peter is watching his Lord that he loves on his way to the cross, and Peter can't handle it. But it's not Peter's call. It's not Peter's journey. It's not God's will for Peter to do this or to rescue Jesus. Other people have a journey, and it is not your job to control their journey. And Solomon has this great proverb. He says, he who gets involved in an argument, not his own, is like somebody that drag, grabs a dog by the ears, you're going to get bit. Meaning, when, peop, when you try to be too controlling of other people's journey, it's going to be a mess. And it's all your fault. Here, Peter, his mess right now, He's chopping off ears. Jesus is having to clean up after him. He'll guys here, right? As if Jesus doesn't have enough to worry about this moment. He's about ready to die on the cross for the sins of the world. I got to clean up after Peter with his bad swordsmanship. You see, he's fighting when he should be permitting Jesus to do what God has for him. The fifth stepping stone downward is following at a distance when he should be going home. In verse 52, then Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple, and the elders who had come to him, have you, not, have you come as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me, but this is your hour in the power of darkness. Having arrested him, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house, but Peter followed at a distance. Bible says, strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. And that's what happened to all the sheep. They all scattered. But Peter and apparently John. And, uh, I mean, John Mark is a young kid. If you read Mark's gospel, when they arrest Jesus, he's a young guy. He's just got a, uh, basically a blanket wrapped around him. He's totally naked. They rip it off him, and he's a streaker running through the woods. I mean, the disciples scattered everywhere. They just, they're getting out of Dodge. And, but Peter follows at a distance, and, and he still can't quite let go. So he, he's not close to Jesus in the sense that he's now surrendered. He's falling out of distance, distance because he doesn't maybe want to get in the same kind of trouble to go to the cross. He, he's trying to wrap his head around all of this stuff. And, and when we get confused, when we get hurt, when we're turned upside down emotionally, sometimes it creates distance between us and Jesus, doesn't it? You're like, Lord, don't you care? Lord, what are you doing? What's happening, Jesus? I don't understand. And in those moments is a great opportunity for the devil to get a foothold. God doesn't love you. God, Jesus doesn't know what he's doing. What's happening, you know? And you, you start listening to all these voices. Peter's following out of the distance, but the best thing that Peter could have done at this moment since Jesus said, I'm going to do what the Father wants me to do. You should permit this. I'm going to be numbered with the transgressors. Jesus even says here, hey, this is your hour. It's the power of darkness. It's Satan's time. Peter should have just packed up and went home. You know, there's a time to go home. And he's following at a distance. When we're tempted and we're just out there in no man's land, one of the best things you can do is just go to home and regroup and not continue late into the night with whatever's going on in the madness of your own brain. Everybody's scattered. In the morning at the cross, only John the Apostle and the women are going to be there, the three Marys and uh, his Jesus' mother, Mary, and Jesus has some words for John the Apostle to take care of his mom, Mary. And they're the only ones there. But Peter here, as he follows out a distance, get, just gets himself in a, a greater compromising position. Number six stepping stone is warming ourselves by the enemy's fires when we should be gathering with God's people. If he is going to go hang out with some people, it would probably be great to go hang out with some believers right now in this moment in time. Verse 55 says, Now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. These are all the people that were a part of the arresting party of Jesus. None of these guys are the apostles with the question mark possibility of John the apostle. And a certain servant girl seeing him in verse 
verse 56, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, this man was also with him. First question. Hey, I saw you with Jesus. Now to a big rugged fisherman, tradition says Peter was a massive man. As a matter of fact, John 21, when they catch 153 large fish in a net, it says Peter went out, grabbed a hold of the net, and drug it to shore by himself. I mean, he's like a brute. Through the muck and the mud and all, I mean, this guy's a house. And yet, here it tells us that a servant girl, hey, you were with him, you big tough guy. (laughs) And it says in verse 57, he denied him, saying, Or excuse me, the servant girl, uh, (laughs) this man was also with him. And he denied him, saying, woman, I do not know him. He denied him, Jesus. He says, I don't know him. Now, wait a second. Was it an hour before that that you just said you were willing to go to prison and die and now you don't even know him? What happened? Well, when you're arguing with God's word and you're not prayed up and you're hanging out with the wrong people, what's his problem right now, you guys? His problem is he's in a group of unbelievers, and the peer pressure's on. It's just like you at work on Monday morning, isn't it? It's just like you at the family reunion, and nobody's a believer but you. Everybody wants to mock you and make the, oh, here comes the Bible thumpers. Here they are. The guys, I work construction. I was in Vegas, and I was working on the Flamingo Hilton, and we had a break room, and I'd have 15 to 20 guys in a break room. And then we would be putting marble in all of the, the high-rise hotel rooms. And Vegas is an interesting place, right? And all the, and, and first of all, construction workers are interesting characters. And I'm a tradesman by, uh, as a tile setter, and so I'm used to construction. My, both my real dad and my stepdad, they're framers, they're builders. I've been around construction a very long time. In construction, if you want to know what the language is like, whatever tool you're going to call it, you just have to call it the F word before you mention the tool. That's what construction's like. (laughs) My wife didn't believe me, and one day somebody was building a house in a vacant lot right behind our house. And these guys, you know, know, she's got the windows open, it's summertime, and it's just, she just hears the F word all day long. She's like, they call their hammer the F word? They call it, I I told you, this is is my world. (laughs) Yeah, so rough guys, and they love to mock, and the pressure's on, and, and so on Friday, they would go to the Barbary Coast, and we, in construction, you get paid every week. It's a weekly thing. You get paid on Friday, do your work, get paid on Friday, you take your check. They'd go to the Barbary Coast, drink beer, and eat hot dogs, and cash their check at the Barbary Coast. And everybody, I mean, I could go down the list of the guys that are, you know, <laughs> the one guy, his girlfriend, he... He just moved in with a lady for a couple of months, and she had three kids, and she, she was a crackhead. And so the kids, you know, the little uh, fuzzy acoustical spray stuff on the ceiling, the kids to torment her because she was a drug addict. She was just like totally spun out all the time. The kids would run through the house with a broom and knock the little white things off and watch their mom crawl around and try to smoke this crack. That was just one out of the many. <laughs> One guy gets his check on a Friday, and, and he just goes over the 21 table. He just, he just the whole, the whole, bets it on one hand, his whole week's check. Boom, gone. <laughs> and these are the guys I'm hanging out with. Well, as soon as they find out I'm a Christian, oh, let the mocking begin. Mr. Sunday School, got a Sunday School lesson for us today, Bible man. This man, na 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 I've grown up, it didn't bother me. I'm like, well. And they would ask me Bible stories, so I'd tell them Bible stories and tell them the gospel and do all of these things, but they love to mock me. But you know the funny thing is, folks? Some of you are going through that. After work, everybody breaks off. This one guy who was right in the crowd when it was the crowd, he looks around to make sure everybody's left the parking lot, and he comes up to me and he says, hey, Rick. I said, What? He said, my mom's dying of cancer. You think you could pray for her? Isn't it funny, those who can mock in a crowd, when it comes to the real heart issues, he really cared about his mom, and because I was sharing about my relationship with God, he was was hoping I could pray for his mom. I want you to know your witness is going a lot further than you think it is. It's having a greater impact than you think it is.
And Peter's in the pressure cooker of the peer pressure right now. And so as he's around this fire, he doesn't want to admit that he knows Jesus. Just like some of us don't want to admit to our family, we don't want to admit to our friends, we don't want to admit to our classmates, we don't want to admit to our coworkers that we love Jesus. You know, the Father, Jesus said, when you confess me before men, my Father will confess, I, I will confess you before my Father in heaven, before the holy angels. Do you know that you, when you go on record to stand up for the Lord, he will go on record for you. Peter's in that place, and the second word comes in verse 58, after a little while, another saw him and said, you also are of them. And Peter said, man, I am not. Verse 59, the third comes along. Then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, surely this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. And Peter said, man, I do not know what you are saying. Immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Not something. These three people ask him, and every time he says no, and Luke here really gives Peter a soft way out, if you will, because Matthew chapter 26, verse 74, says that when he was asked the last time, it says, he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. He begins to cuss like a sailor. Well, he was a sailor. He was a fisherman, so I guess that fit. But what it means, it doesn't mean that he was using the kind of profanity we would think of. It means he cursed. He cursed himself. What he was saying is, may I be damned to hell if I know that man. That's how strong of, on record he was going. Now, he just said an hour, two hours earlier, I'll go to prison. I'll die for you. Now he's calling down a curse on his own life? If he even knows the man? How do we go from this overconfidence in our walk with God to totally falling on our face with a rooster crowing in the background? You don't get there overnight. There's steps. Start ignoring God's word. We lose our prayer life. We're hanging out with the wrong people. The pressure's on us. You see, Peter was warming himself by the enemy's fire. Sometimes when we're going through times of discouragement, we go, you know, forget it. I've had this conversation so many times over the years. You know, I was discouraged in my walk with the Lord. I got kind of mad at the Lord. He let me down on something. I said, oh, forget this Christian thing. I'm just going to go hang out with my old party buddies, go back to my drugs, go do my thing. And you're going back and warming yourself by the enemy's fire. Right? It's the old thrill. I had more fun back there, you say. Really? Did you? What brought you to Jesus if it was so fun back there? Right, the emptiness of it, the guilt and shame of it, the addiction of it, the, the hopelessness of it. You see, the devil, when he tempts us, it's like the children of Israel. God brought them out of Egypt, out of this tremendous bondage, and they, every time they thought of Egypt, they thought of it so fondly. Oh, that we could go back and have the leeks and the garlic and the onions and the spices and the meat. Oh, that we could go back to Egypt. It's like, dude, they were whipping you and making you make bricks. Right, you were slaves. What about that? No, I could just remember the food. <laughs> it's like, what is it with the food? What about the bondage? What about the groaning? What about the crying? What about that, that satanic pharaoh? What about that? It's just, it's almost like it just, whoosh, just wiped from your memory. That's what Peter says as he quotes Proverbs. Just like a dog returns to its vomit, right? Go back to that old life. Now, all of us would have to agree that that's the grossest thing that you've ever witnessed in your entire life. If, you got a, if you're a dog lover, once again, a moment. But that's what it's like for a person that knows God, then goes back. It's like warming themselves by the enemy's fire. And to where they're finally cursing, calling a curse down upon their head, that they may their soul be cursed to hell if they even know Jesus. Wow. How the greatest leader of the 12 apostles just hours ago that promised to be in prison and die with Jesus. Call a curse on himself that he doesn't even know him. 
That's satanic temptation. That's the power of the enemy if we're not prayed up and tuned into God's word that you and I are up against. We also have to surround ourselves. Peter could have, instead of warming himself up by the enemy's fire, he could have been going to some believer's houses and praying and being strengthened. Proverbs 12, 26 says, the righteous should choose his friends carefully for the way of the wicked leads them astray. These people put the pressure on Peter and Peter caved. His faith didn't cave, but his courage failed. Lastly, we have the seventh stepping stone is regretting when we should be repenting. And at that very moment that the rooster crowed and it hit Peter, boom, he remembered what Jesus said. Check it out, verse 61. The Lord turned and looked at Peter across the courtyard. You see, Jesus could see Peter while he was by the fire. Maybe it's at the back of that room over there. It's that far away. And they're interrogating Jesus and they're abusing Jesus. And right in that moment when the rooster crows and Jesus hears it and Peter hears it and it dawns on Peter and Jesus told him that's what was going to happen, he looked across the courtyard and Peter and Jesus' eyes locked in that moment. And Peter's soul was devastated. He heard him pronounce the curse upon himself. And then Peter, it says in verse 61, remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. This last stepping stone is so vital because all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. As a Christian, I've, I've messed up my witness so many times. I've stumbled and fallen. I've, I've been silent when I should have spoken, and I've spoken when I should have kept silent. And all those things, you just kick yourself after the fact, don't you? You had this opportunity to share, and somebody opened it up, and then you went home and didn't do anything about it. And as all of that unfolds, this, this torment, and, and the beautiful thing about the Christian life is that it's a series of new beginnings, and Peter was going to experience this new beginning, but he would only experience it if he repented. That meant to change his mind, accept the Lord's forgiveness, and be restored to his love and his service. Because somebody that sinned in a terrible way was Judas Iscariot. And it says of Judas, and he went a different route. In Matthew 27, verse 3 through 5, it says, Judas, his betrayer, was remorseful, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood, went out and hanged himself. Now, that's not a good way to go, right? If you sin and fail, you don't want to go out and hang yourself. I mean, that, that kind of ends the whole process of being able to walk with and serve God. So you want to be able to, Peter and, and Judas are such great examples because one was brokenhearted and went through repentance and restoration and his love and service to God. And Judas just went out and ended his life. And some people, once again, the devil will tempt you to go out and end your life. Maybe you're here tonight. And you've been tempted to harm yourself. It's a real deal. If you've ever struggled with those thoughts and those temptations, those fiery darts. But the Lord wants to heal. He wants to restore. You see, the difference between the godly sorrow and the sorrow of the world is explained to us in 2 Corinthians 7.10. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. Notice that. Godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death, just like in the case of Judas Iscariot. I love when Jesus rises from the dead on the third day in Mark 17, verse 7. The angel tells those who are going to take the message, go tell his disciples and Peter. Jesus had a special message for Peter three days later, because he hasn't talked to the Lord since then, right? Maybe Jesus gave up on Peter. He doesn't know. He says, no, I want you to go tell Peter. In John 21, 17, where Jesus restores Peter, this is their conversation. He says, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my, feed my sheep. Peter, I'm going to restore you. Peter denied him three times, so what did Jesus do? He asked him three times, do you love me? You see God's grace, right? I'm going to give you three chances <laughs> to say you love me, just like you had three chances to deny me. Now just, you know, step up, say you love me, and we're going to continue on, and I'm going to be, Peter was going to be restored to service to feed the Lord's sheep. I don't know where you're at tonight, but I know this about the human condition, whether it's this week or next week or next month. We need to constantly be reminded about the loving, gracious restoration of our Savior just as we see it in Peter's life. Even when his fail was epic, he went big because he didn't go home and he fell on his face. 
But 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. One of the most heartbreaking things for people is to sin in some way that they shock themselves. They startle themselves. Peter was, no doubt, shocked himself because he didn't think he would deny the Lord. He thought he was willing to die for him and go to prison. Jesus, when he went on to restore him, do you know what he told him? He said he was going to follow him in death when he's an old man. He's going to stretch out his arms and follow Jesus. Meaning Peter, when he died, not only with what Jesus said prophetically, but historically, Peter was crucified, just like his Lord. But it's extra biblical history when Jesus was going to the cross. Peter was crucified and his wife was crucified before him. Can you imagine? Sin in your wife. She's, honey, trust the Lord. We're going to see him pretty soon. And when Peter went to the cross, he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Lord crucify me upside down. And they crucified Peter upside down. The guy that could not say that he actually knew Jesus to a young servant girl was saying, turn me upside down, drive spikes through my hands and my feet for my Savior because I'm never denying him again. You see the strength that God brings when he restores a heart, he restores a soul, he strengthens us. He'll never give up on you guys. He'll never leave you or forsake you. I don't care what's happened in your life. I don't know, care what you're struggling with now. The Lord wants to heal, restore, and strengthen you. Because he knows our frame, that we're dust, right? We're frail, but God in his grace will meet us right where we're at, and he's gonna meet you right where you're at tonight. Right in the middle of your life, he knows your tears, he knows the heartache, he knows the failure, and he says, I love you. Do you love me? Let's restore this and move forward and put that behind us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. We thank you that you never give up on us. You're just faithful, faithful, faithful. And Lord, I just pray for those who are here right now that you would refresh them, bless them, strengthen them as they walk with you in this incredible thing called the Christian life. And Lord, I pray that you would bind up the wounds of just the haunting thoughts of failure, that you would wash them, cleanse them with a refreshing vision of the future, applying what Paul the Apostle said, forgetting those things that are behind and pressing forward to the upward call that is in Christ Jesus. Lord, we thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. We're going to sing this worship song. And uh, if any of you need prayer, I'm just going to hang out up here in the front. I'd love to pray with you. Pastor Craig's here. You can come up and join me, and we'll just pray for anybody that needs prayer. May the Lord bless you and keep you. If you're an early riser, Pastor Rob's going to be on at 6 a.m. on Fox News tomorrow morning. So uh, most of you will uh, see that later in the day somehow on the website.